Well, I was hoping you would get that. Um, I, we looked at it uh, a couple of weeks ago and we were a little bit apprehensive whether or not the point would come across or not, but uh, I'm, gl I'm glad that I heard a few laughs anyway. Um, that is not what rest is, obviously, obviously, but that uh, may be the explanation from some people and uh, it does prove the point, bear out the point that this idea of rest, this idea of Sabbath can be very confusing to a mass of people. Some can understand, some may never understand. Um, we are in the midst of a uh, series called Get Some Rest. And uh, last week, last week uh, Walt brought us up to uh, chapter 12, the first few verses in chapter 12, um, teaching about the Sabbath, what the Sabbath is and what the Sabbath is not. And I, I think it would be worth our time maybe to just recap. Some of you, quite a few of you here uh, were not here last week. Just to recap a little of what uh, Walt uh, summarized in those scriptures from 1 through 8 of Matthew chapter 12. Jesus, it seems, gave three examples to the Pharisees um, of where it was okay to work, to do something on the Sabbath instead of just sitting at home doing absolutely nothing. And the three examples he gave were, were these. The first was about King David. King David, of course, the, the Pharisees would have loved to hear about King David. It was, it was their king. It was the one they looked up to. But King David had eaten some of the consecrated bread that was meant for the temple, which was a huge no-no, a huge no-no. Um, and it, was, it seemed to be okay. I went back to 1 Samuel 21, 1 through 6 and read that story uh, again this past week because it had been a while since I had read through that account. This is basically what, what was in 1 through 6 of Matthew 21. David has been anointed the king, but he hasn't taken over as king. Saul is still the king, and Saul hates and hunts down David. He's looking for him. He wants to kill him. So David and his men fled to a little town called Nob, N-O-B, which is just, just a stone's throw, really, from Jerusalem, northeast of Jerusalem. And it was uh, where the priests would, uh, uh, I wouldn't say live, but they had places there where they could stay. David's group his men were very hungry because they had no provisions. And when they came to the, the chief priest, who was um, Ahimelech at that time, strange name, Ahimelech. Ahimelech gave them 12 loaves of bread which had been consecrated, which had been set before in the temple before, before the Ark of the Covenant. And it was to be used specifically for the priests, but... Uh, Ahimelech had given the bread to David and his men to eat. Uh, and they ate it. And Jesus said at the end of, of what we looked at last week in another account from Mark, he said the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So that was his first example. The second example, he used uh, priests working in the temple. He said, you guys... 
you Pharisees, you priests, you have to work on Sabbath. You don't get Sabbath off. That's your work day. So how can you say that there can't be any work done on the Sabbath when that's like your big day? You know, that didn't make any sense. The third example was the teaching from Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. And it says this, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Mercy was the important thing, and Paul picks up on this theme. Paul is one of the, one of the guys that uh, later on became an apostle of Jesus. After Jesus had died, uh, was buried, resurrected, went to heaven, Paul became one of the apostles that took the good news to literally the, the rest of the world at that time, uh, all of Asia Minor and even into Europe. And in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, the first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 13, we think of that as being the love chapter that we read so often at uh, weddings. And in verse 3, we read this, if I and he lists some things. If I have all these things and have not love, I gain nothing. So if we don't have love, if we don't show mercy, none of the other things like, like speaking in tongues or prophecy or words of knowledge or faith or any of the other gifts that Paul was talking about in that passage, none of them are of any value at all without showing mercy. And at the conclusion of last week's service... Walt gave you the challenge to go out of here and find a time each day during the week that you could spend with God. He asked you to do that, and he asked that you kind of post maybe some of your results. And I did see one or two of those posted to, that were sent to him on uh, Facebook this week. But I'm just curious if anybody here tried it and what the result was. I know this is a big crowd and you don't want to say anything in front of all these people, but would anybody be brave enough to say, yeah, I tried that and, and this is what happened? Anybody? Well, okay. And I'm not going to call... We, we are an alpha church and I won't call on you or anything, but I, I just thought maybe somebody had a, a great revelation about this quiet time thing. Continue it. Continue the challenge that he laid out before you and just see if it won't revolutionize your life as you spend time with God on a daily basis. In the second incident in the book of Matthew, also in chapter 12, Matthew gives us this account of Jesus' uh, further instruction to the Pharisees regarding the Sabbath. I guess I should say who the Pharisees are. The Pharisees are the religious people at the time of Jesus. They, they might not necessarily be the priests in the temple, but they were the ones that were kind of in charge of the, of the religion at the time. They were the ones that you would go to if you had a question about whether this was right or this was wrong. They were the ones that kept adding regulations to the law that God had given to the uh, Jewish people. And I think, if my memory's correct, they came up with 637 uh, 
variations of those laws, little things that, that you had to do in order to uh, meet the criteria that God had intended for you to meet. So Jesus is instructing these guys in what the Sabbath really is when they were the ones that should know better than anybody else on the planet what is meant by Sabbath. So let's look at Matthew chapter 12, verses 9 through 14. That's going to be the passage that we, that we focus in on today. And then, of course, of course, we'll use other portions of God's Word to um, support that. In this church, we believe that the Bible is the infallible Word of God, the only rule that we have for our faith and for our life. So listen, listen to God's Word as I read, beginning at verse 9. Going on from that place, he, that's Jesus, went into their synagogue. Let me stop right there. A synagogue, if, if you'll think of church, a synagogue is a Jewish church. Okay, there's a lot of other things, but think of it in terms of their church. He went into their synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, they asked him, and the they there is the Pharisees. That's who Walt was talking about last week, and this is a continuation. They asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Hmm. Is that considered work or not work? Let's see if we can't trick him. Is it lawful? God's law they were talking about. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And he said to them, if any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out and it was completely restored just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. That was their response to this. So from this account in Matthew, we first of all might assume that, that the second incident occurs right after the incident that um, Walt was talking about last week where they were in the fields eating some of the grain. But Luke chapter 6, verse 6, makes it clear. You know, I tell you from time to time, you have to look at these stories in all the Gospels. Lay them out side by side and find the facts that are concerning each one of these stories in each of the Gospels, and then you get the full account. It's, it's just like there was a robbery in the parking lot, and we saw something, but we're not real sure what we saw when the police show up, and they start interviewing us. They might interview 20 different people and get 20 different accounts of what the person looked like, how tall he was, what his weight was, what was he wearing, uh, which way did he run, did he have a gun or a knife, and yada, yada, yada. You know how that goes. So when we put all that together, we get a good picture of what was really happening. And you have to do that with, with the Gospels, with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And in Luke chapter 6, verse 6, it makes it clear because Luke says, on another Sabbath. So it was a different Sabbath than that day. But 
That's not the point. We don't need to get hung up on the time matter here. Uh, Matthew was proving his case that Jesus is the Messiah, the King of the Jews, and he's not really concerned with chronological order. He's more concerned with facts. He's concerned with building a case that would hold up in court, we might say. So he's going to build this case with the facts. And there's two things that Matthew wants us as his readers to, to take away from this account that he's giving us. The first is this. It is always right to do good, even and especially on the Sabbath. It's always right to do good. Those who would get hung up on, uh, on the chronology here would, would miss that point. We'd be kind of like Pharisees ourselves. It builds so naturally on what we were talking about last week about mercy in those first eight chapters of, of Matthew. Jesus shows mercy to the handicapped man, which those Pharisees were not about to do. They were not going to do that. Why would they show mercy to somebody? And Jesus rebukes them for their hypocrisy. And their laws? Well, look at their silly laws. They permit a person to rescue a trapped sheep even on the Sabbath. That's okay. But for Jesus to rescue the man with the shriveled hand on the Sabbath... That couldn't be done. How crazy is that? How crazy is their logic? Is a sheep more valuable than a human being, he says? And we didn't see that they had an answer for that question, so it must have been a rhetorical question. And therefore, Matthew concludes this. He says, it was right for Jesus to heal the man and by extension to do good anytime, anywhere. He did right. He did the right thing. He showed mercy. And Jesus said in verse 12, 12, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. So that's the first thing. The second thing Matthew wants us to take away is this. The healing of the imperfect man proves that Jesus' interpretation of the Sabbath is correct. Remember, he's proving the point. He's proving the point. And in essence, the lesson was completed when the man was healed. Hadn't been, well, in time it's been a while, but it hadn't been too long ago in Scripture that we looked at uh, Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 through 8, where Jesus healed a paralyzed man. And you remember when he healed this paralyzed man, he said in Matthew 9, 2, Take heart, son. Your sins are forgiven. And they knew that only God can forgive sins. So they had to extrapolate that maybe this man is saying that he's God. And in this account, he healed the man's hand. Clearly, he did it with the power of God thus proving that his interpretation of the Sabbath and his acts of mercy on the Sabbath were the right thing to do because they were approved by God. 
But the Pharisees, the Pharisees, they were pretty sure that their scriptures didn't agree with that. It was, it was sort of like, you remember that scene in How the Grinch Stole Christmas? Do you remember that? Hmm. So he, Whoville had a book too. And the leaders in Whoville thought they knew, thought they could interpret the book for the people. But when it came right down to brass tacks, they weren't able to find the correct scripture in the book. Sounds a little to me like this story with the Pharisees. And then when I, when I uh, watch this and hear uh, the who meister or whatever he was uh, um, ask for a nomination and Cindy Lou says the Grinch and everybody gasps and turns and looks at Cindy... I think it was very much like Jesus saying, uh, whoops, uh, stretch out your hand to the man. Stretch out your hand. And you can see the people in the temple going, <gasps> on Sunday? On Sabbath? Are you kidding? So what now? What now? Did the Pharisees then believe and agree with Jesus? An Elizabethan aristocrat that we all know named Sir Walter Raleigh said this, A man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. They hadn't changed their minds. That's a meaningful word of advice, yes, but certainly... It was true of the Pharisees. Were they convinced? No. They were probably postmoderns to whom facts don't mean a thing. They don't care how many facts you lay out, it doesn't matter. They're interested in the experience, not the facts. They want to feel it, see it, hear it, touch it. Don't give me facts. They get in the way. Mark chapter 3 verse 4 says about the Pharisees, they were silenced. It was as if they didn't have a retort. That might be true. They were silenced, but they were not convinced. In fact, the situation grew even worse. Matthew 12, 14 implies that they were determined to kill Jesus now. From this point on, they were hatching this plot to kill Jesus. So here's a group of men, Pharisees, who are so fastidious in, in their interpretations of God's law. They were as religious as religious people could possibly be. They knew that killing was certainly against the law of God. But because Jesus was not conforming to their interpretations of the Sabbath regulations that they had set out, they began to figure out how they might kill him. 
So here's, here's my big idea for you today. How sad it is to have a religion of rules and rituals, and yet the heart of the worshiper remains far from God. How sad that is. And we have plenty of those places here in America today. Plenty of churches that are so legalistic about what they do that they miss the mercy, they miss the grace, they miss the love that's supposed to go ahead of everything else. They miss the true meaning. They get out their Whoville book and try to interpret it in some different way from what it was intended. And it takes some simpleton like Cindy Lou to set them straight. The innocence of a child. We need to look at the scriptures with childlike eyes. Not, not naively and, and, and certainly not ignorantly, but openly. Openly. See what the scriptures say. What do they really mean? And not be so influenced by those outstanding theologians that think they already have it figured out and have no heart. Unfortunately, there is, there's no evil so great that it has not been practiced by someone at some time in the name of religion. And that's kind of what we have to build on here. I, th I think right off about the Crusades. You know that we go back and forth to, to Israel um, on a fairly regular basis. And we're always running into crusader stuff. This wall was built by the crusaders. This castle or palace or whatever was built by the crusaders. That's from the crusaders' time. Da-da-da-da-da-da. What they had intended to do was good. But what they did and how they did it has torn the Middle East and torn us apart for centuries. To the point that if I'm doing missions in a third world country, I will no longer say that I'm a Christian because of the connotation, the baggage that goes with it. I will say I'm a believer or a Christ follower, but not Christian. Christian in many places has an awful underlying meaning to it. So whose kingdom is being advanced here? Well, it's also true, I think you might agree, that there's nothing so tragic as the tendency of the heart of a person to seize upon those things that are outward and useless and hypocritical um, in, in ceremony or in ritualistic stuff that's in our churches and to follow that to the letter without having any desire at all for turning to God to have a relationship with Him. 
We just want to follow the rules. I guess because we think if I follow these rules, uh, I'll get to heaven. I'll be good enough. Well, man, that's not going to make you good enough. If you're sitting here today thinking that if I follow those rules, I'll be good enough, let, let me tell you, we will never be good enough. There's not enough rules out there for us to follow that we could be good enough. Why did the Pharisees hate Jesus so much? Well, he was breaking their rules. Yes, that's true. That's true. He was breaking their rules, and they hated that. They hated for anybody to break their rules. But underlying that hatred, I think, is the fact that Jesus was holy, and they weren't. Jesus was good, and they weren't. Jesus was exercising the authority that God had given them, had given him, true authority that God had given him, and they were not. That's why they hated him. And Jesus, through this account in Matthew 12, reminds us that it's not about religion. It's about relationship, a loving and intimate relationship with the creator of the universe through his son, Jesus Christ, who is the only way for us to have that relationship. I can't go to God. You can't go to God except through Jesus Christ. Let me paraphrase a great non-biblical scholar by the name of James Carville, who was the campaign director for Bill Clinton when he first ran for office. Some of you weren't even born then. <laughs> James Carville had on the wall in his office, it's the economy, stupid. And I think we could put on the wall of our hearts. It's the relationship, stupid. It's not the religion. It's the relationship. You see, God created me for a relationship with him. And I put it on your, your little handout that way so that you had to understand that he created you for that relationship. It was so easy for me to, to think about for years and years and years that um, he created other people for a relationship with him. That was easy. But then one day I realized that he created me. me. He loves me. I know he loves the world, but he loves me. And he created me for a relationship with him. How big is that? So as you write that down there, 
God created me, understand that it's you. You might even put your name above it or in the blank. He created you because he loves you. He loves you more than anybody else in the world. He sent his son to prove that. That's what we celebrate right here at this table. We celebrate the atonement, the redemption, the love, the death of God's Son for you. Wow. And we do this every week. And sometimes I think that's not often enough for us to remember. We tend to forget between Sundays. You get to about Thursday and it's, uh, well, I forgot what we talked about in church last week. I remember that clip from How the Grinch Stole Christmas. But I'm not real sure what we talked about. Hmm. This table's important. You see, on the night before Jesus was to die, he had a meal with his friends. And he took the bread, the loaf off of the table, and he broke it. And he said, this is my body that's broken for you. For each of you. And I can picture him saying that, and though he's looking at the bread, he's looking into the eye of each person there. Those searing eyes that knew that he was looking right into their hearts. I did this for you, he said. I'm doing this to show you how much I love you. And he took the cup and poured the wine into it, saying, this cup is the new covenant. Pharisees were hanging out with the old covenant. He said, I'm starting a new covenant. This is the new covenant in my blood poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. He said, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you remember my death until I come. His death for you, out of love, out of love, so that you could have a relationship with his father. Man, that's how it all ties together. Wow, it makes sense. I don't need some Pharisee to interpret that for me. And the book of who is very clear. And we can find verse after verse after verse after verse to support that. He loves you. He created you for a relationship with him. I'm going to ask the servers to come, please. And you know what? We have some... some folks here that are on our ministry team and they're going to be on either side of, of the room, I'd like for you to go talk with them about this relationship. Maybe you don't even know what we're talking about with them. How can you have a relationship with Jesus or with God, the creator of the universe? They would love to tell you how that can happen and it can happen today before you leave here. 
They will be glad to pray with you about anything, any issue in your life. I love to say that there's no... There's nothing that you're concerned about that God isn't concerned about. It doesn't matter how small it might be or insignificant to you. It's important to God if it concerns you.